morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning. Those of you who are online with us, we're happy that you are here. Uh, while you are to be commended for braving the cold outside as well as the snow and icy roads, uh, being able to get here, is, I mean, it's beautiful outside when you think about this, how wonderful the snow is and how much we needed the moisture. Our thanks this morning to Bob Hoffman and Alex Payton and Gary Ingalls for shoveling the sidewalks and allowing us to be able to get in here a little bit easier without having to tromp through a bunch of snow. So we appreciate that work on you guys' behalf. Anyway, it's good to be here today. And as you know, it, this is Valentine's Day. And so happy Valentine's Day. Uh, this is a day that's probably the first uh, holiday or at least recognized holiday tradition of the year. It's a time when we were able to remember those that we uh, care about and have a relationship with. And so Valentine's Day is a, a, an incredible day. But you know this, it, it's so popular as a holiday that in, in fact over $21.8 billion are spent on buying candy and gifts and, and flowers and cards. There's a lot of money spent around this time of the year. In fact, it's average that uh, the male or the husband spends about $168 a year on their wife or maybe on their girlfriend. That's a lot of money when you think about it. The average woman spends about $61. So let me ask you guys, are you guys feeling a little bit of pressure when you think about uh, the average $168? Or if you're not thinking about that, uh, think about the, just the fact that, you know, Valentine's Day is a fun day, but it's a day that's filled with some expectations, maybe a few challenges that are, are there. But lest we take it too seriously, let me share with you a couple of ditties that I found that I thought were cute. What did the cucumber say to the pickle on Valentine's Day? You mean a great deal to me. What Valentine card did the light bulb say to the other light bulb? I love you a lot. What is man's favorite song? What is the ram's favorite song on February the 14th? I only have eyes for you. What did the French chef give his wife on Valentine's Day? A hug and a quiche. Well, okay, those are fairly silly. But one of the things about Valentine's Day is it's fun. And the reason why it's fun is it gives us an opportunity to affirm our love for our wife or husband or maybe for our girlfriend or boyfriend, or maybe just for those that we go to a school with or maybe even work with. It gives us opportunity to do that. And in keeping with our theme that we have been sharing with you over the last month or so is Valentine's Day offers us an opportunity to reset our love for one another. So our theme has been on resetting things. And as you talk about resetting things, I've been sharing with you a number of things or um, opportunities that we have as a congregation to carry out our mission as well as the ministry of the church and the world in which we live. And we began by talking about resetting the script. Jesus said that, you know, he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And yet the world has a script that says, listen, the abundant life for you is for you to be famous or for you to be wealthy or any a number of those kinds of things. And it sets up the standard or the the uh, the standard of conduct that we are to live our lives by. And yet God says there is another standard that is according to his will. God wants you to have the abundant life, but his will is revealed to us in the scriptures and that he sets our values and our standard of conduct and that we are to listen to those things that he has to say to, to us. And then we talked about resetting our purpose. And when you talk about resetting our purpose, well, resetting our purpose, it has to do with the fact that we are to glorify God. That's why we exist as Christians. That's why we exist as a congregation to reset the purpose and to glorify God in our lives. 
They're not talking about resetting our profile. It doesn't matter how much we glorify God or, or how much we reset the script. If our profile is not right, that is various character traits that are to be a, a part of what our life is about. And then last week, I talked to you about resetting our priorities and how re priorities are so important in our lives. And so I thought what we would do this morning is I want to go back and revisit that and do a brief glance uh, backwards of the priorities that are placed before us. So let me invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, over to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 42 down through 47. Now, I, I know that as you look at this section of Scripture, you're thinking to yourself, we're very familiar with this section of Scripture. We know this Scripture, but let me encourage you, as hard as it might be, to, to look at this with fresh eyes. Think of yourself on that first day on, on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit overwhelms the apostles and they begin to speak in various languages and Peter proclaims the first gospel sermon. The people there are so pricked in their hearts that they ask Peter what to do, and he responds by telling them to, be, to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and that they'd receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 of those people did that. A whole complete new beginning for them. A complete reset in their life. A complete refreshment of their lives. Listen to how they responded, these 3,000 that were baptized into Christ. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their properties and possession and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. That's the first church. And in this section of Scripture, you recall last week that I said that in this section, you'll find uh, at least four major priorities, or if you will, meaningful activities that the church was involved with that meant so much to them and caused them to grow in, in incredible kinds of ways as they spread the word and as people were added to the body of of Christ. And so we talked about priorities, and I share with you these four uh, priorities. Each of the priorities begins with a letter and ends up becoming an acronym, which is the word wife. As we think about Valentine's Day and our wives, think now about the relationship that we have within the church, our wife, if you will. And have we affirmed our love for it? And have we engaged in the priorities of what the church is about? For instance, the word worship begins with W. The first century church was a worshiping uh, church. They were excited about being together with one another. They had left so much behind. And so it says that they were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were devoted to gathering around the Lord's table and remembering what Jesus Christ had done for them. They, they were constantly offering up their prayers of praise and adoration and thanksgiving to God. And so they are a worshiping group of people. The I stands for instruction. They were a learning group of people. They were steadfast in the apostles' teaching. They hung on to those words. These were new words, new revelation that they were hearing that was different from anything they had ever heard before. And so they were being instructed toward maturity in their spiritual lives. 
The F stands for fellowship. They were not only a learning congregation or church, they were a sharing and a caring and, and a bearing kind of church. They were selling property and possessions so that they would have all things in common with one another. And they were an, evangeliz, uh, an evangelistic a body of people. And so when you think about them reaching out into the world and carrying out the message of Jesus, they become major priorities that we can apply to our, ourselves, to our wife, if you will. And so as you take a closer look at your, your wife, how does your relationship with her look? And are we carrying out the priorities of having this relationship within this great body of people called the, the church? And why are these priorities important in the first place? Well, there's probably a lot of answers to that question, but one that I think that stands out at least to me is spiritual starvation. In fact, we live in a world where famine is, is a grotesque and it's a global reality. I mean, how many of us have not watched TV where they showed a, a commercial of these little children with showing their ribs and their protruding uh, tummies that are out there because they are starving to, to death? And when we see that, our hearts go out to them and maybe our hearts even, even break. But that is a global thing, but it's not everywhere. But when you talk about spiritual starvation, well, that's something that becomes a real deal. It's something that is really there. In Amos, the eighth chapter, in verses 11 through 13, there the, uh, the, the prophet there spoke to the people there about a famine that was on the way. The children of Israel had neglected the word of God. They quit listening to the prophets. They were not being obedient to what God was saying to them through the priests and the prophets. In fact, a lot of the priests and the prophets had become rotten from within and were not teaching the truth. And the result of that, God says, is there's going to be a famine. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And people will stagger from sea to sea, from north even to the east, and they will go uh, to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst." He said there's a famine that is coming, and that famine did come, and it lasted, wow, it lasted for 430 years where God quit speaking to them. I mean, the priests were saying things, but they weren't really talking about a truth. There were no, no prophets, unless they were false prophets, and that's why when John the Baptist came back on the scene 430 years after Amos, that it was an incredible day, and that's why people came from all over the place to listen to what he had to say, because there was a hunger and a thirst for the Word of God. There was a hunger and a thirst for what truth was about. Well, the passage can apply to us, not that we don't have the word of God. In fact, we have ample qualities of the word of God. Oh, just about every household has a, a Bible, maybe even a multiplicity of Bibles. Bibles are certainly available. God's word is available to people, and yet people are starving for the truth. How do I know they're starving for the truth? Because they're searching it. They're going here and there, to and fro, in all directions, looking for truth. 
whether it's reading a palm or a tarot card or, or trying to read someone to read your fortune uh, to you or your horoscope uh, to you. People are going after philosophies and this kind of ism and that kind of ism. They're going through after all kinds of things. We have over 800 primary denominations in our world today. And so people are out there looking after truth. There are various kinds of philosophies that are there. And so people are starving for truth and they're looking for truth, but many are not finding it. The energies are wasted. Their trust is waning. Their hope is withered. Even though Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, people don't feel as though life is abundant. Abundance in terms of money, there is never enough. There is never enough power. There's never enough fame. The things that the world says that we are to trust after and put all of our energies into, it's leaving us empty on the inside. They don't know where to turn when the bottom drops out or which direction to take when their lives are at a crossroads. Think about the pandemic that we are in. When you talk about just the suicide that is happening because of the desperate feelings that people have emotionally within themselves, it's, out, it's, it's tragic. It's almost an epidemic in and of it itself because people don't know where to turn to when the bottom finds out, falls out. Whether you're talking about your health or whether you're talking about the economy or even when you're talking about politics, all those things seem to let us down. And so we find ourselves at a crossroad knowing not which way to go. Lost in a desert. They look desperately for an oasis of truth. And the good news is, is that the church is an oasis. The church is supposed to be a refreshment of, of worship. I said to you last week as I talked about worship that when you leave a worship service, it should be a, a, a refreshing time. We should walk out of our feeling clean as though we had taken a spiritual shower and that there is a refreshment that has been given to us when we are able to be together with one another. It provides nourishment of spiritual food, not only in this portion of our worship period, but certainly on Sunday evenings. On Sunday evening, Butch is doing an incredible class on the book of Galatians. And Charles is doing a wonderful job as he takes us through Deuteronomy and finds different kinds of principles and truths that we can apply to our lives that are found in that ancient book. Those are truths that are spiritual nourishment that build up our faith. And then there's the shade of fellowship, where we're able to have a fellowship that draws people from all walks of life, from all kinds of education and social statuses, that we're in all races and genders, we're brought together as one in this shade of fellowship. And so in a world that is starving and, and thirsty, the church is a place that dispenses fruit, refreshment, and offers to people a sense of the abundant life and hope. Those are the things that the church has to offer to the world that is around us. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time is take a closer look at our priorities. Last week, I spent quite a bit of time as I talked to you about, oh, about worship and instruction. This morning, I want to talk to you a little bit more in depth about the value of fellowship and the importance of evangelism. So let's talk first about, or let me talk to you first about the value of fellowship. Next two in verse 42, there it says that they were devoted or steadfast into the apostles' doctrine or teaching to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. This word that is used for fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. I know you've probably heard that word a number of times. Various camps across the nation, youth camps, are called 
camp koinonia or koinonia camp. The root koinos has the idea of something that is being held in common with, with others. The word is used like 20 times. And then derivatives of it are used another 19 times for a total of 39 times, which should tell us at least this, that when you talk about fellowship, fellowship is extremely important as a part of what the church is about. And that's why it's such a strong priority. Worship certainly is a priority. Instruction, a needed priority, but fellowship is what brings us together in a way that broadens who we are as a body of, of, of people. When you look at Acts 2 and verse 44, it says, all those who believed were together and they had all things in common. The word all is used like three times in this section of Scripture, verses 44 and 45, that tells you that, listen, this commonality that they had with each other was incredible. Because they're willing to go at great lengths to make this fellowship something that had substance to it. It wasn't just an ethereal kind of thing. It was something that was a reality, something that was real to them. And that's why it says they were devoted to it. They were steadfast to it. They had a fidelity and a loyalty and a commitment to that fellowship of those first believers where over 3,000 were there. They came from all, all places uh, uh, within the vicinity of at least getting to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they're leaving a lot behind in order to be followers of Jesus Christ. So there is this deep need to have this fellowship with each other. It's a fellowship that even we need today as we think about who we are and, and what we are in life. And almost without exception, the meaning involves that of sharing. For instance, over in Luke, the fifth chapter and verse 10, there it says that business partners were, use the word koinonia. In that section of scripture there, it says that, that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were partners with Cephas or Simon, Peter. They were partners together as fishermen. They were, you know, they were together in agreement with that, and so they had koinonia. Or Hebrews, the 10th chapter and verse 33, there it talks about being companions in suffering. The word companion there is that koinonia. They fellowshiped even in their suffering. Or Galatians 2 and verse 9, Paul says that when James and Cephas and John came together, they were in agreement that they had all received the grace of God or that Paul and Barnabas had received the grace of, of God. And so they offered them the right hand of fellowship, saying to them, listen, you go to the Gentiles, we will go to the circumcised. We will go to the Jews. And so in this sense, there was a sense of fellowship that is found there, or koinonia. So the New Testament was, uh, they not only had things together, but they were together. How many of you, when you're growing up, collected uh, marbles? Even today in my office, I have a jar of marbles that are there. When I was a little boy, you could take that jar of marbles and say you wanted to play with them, and you're saying you're on the kitchen floor, and you, or maybe you're outside on a sidewalk, and you pour those marbles out. Unless you put your hands there or had something to capture them, guess what marbles do? They scatter everywhere. If you're in your mom's kitchen, they make a lot of noise. Well, the first century church, they were not like a bunch of isolated marbles that, you know, that make a lot of noise and scatter in all kinds of different kinds of directions in isolation. 
The church wasn't like that of the first century. They were closely gathered together. They're more like a cluster of, of grapes that were together. Jesus was the vine. We are the branches. We produce the fruit, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and, and goodness. Those things were all together. And so those people were like a cluster of grapes. And when things began to squeeze on these people, well, their blood intermingled. They, they were just together. So when the wine press of persecution came squeezing down on them, this close body of believers, they bled together. And now this painful experience, uh, this crushing experience, there came a sweet wine of fellowship. And so it wasn't a thing where we say, okay, we got to get up and go to church on Sunday morning. Or we got to go to Bible class on Wednesday evening. It wasn't that kind of a thing. It was a real fellowship where they wanted to be together with one another. And those first 3,000 said that they were going to the temple daily. And from house to house, they were breaking their bread together with one another. There was a fellowship there that was absolutely contagious to that body of believers. The New Testament, it has, I believe, at least two definite expressions of fellowship. The first is this. It is to share something with someone else. That's what's being said in verse 44 and verse 45, that they were selling their property and their possessions and that they had all things in common. There are those who had and there were the have-nots. And they were taking care of one another. They are blending their resources together so that no one was in need and that all things were in common. That's incredible when you think about it, that people were willing to give up wealth and prosperity in order to have this deep fellowship that would bind them together. So there was, a, there was something that they were sharing with someone else. The second thing is, is that they shared something with someone else. And that's what I just talked about when we talked about the grapes, is that when they got down to it, the church fought, fell under persecution. And then the church, instead of being scattered, they came closer together. It's what bound them to one another, a common cause and a common Savior that knitted them together with one another. There was that closeness that was there. So we might define fellowship as the expression of genuine Christianity that was freely shared among God's members, a deep fellowship. So there's value in, in our fellowship, and that's why it should be a priority where we do everything we can to stay close to one another. And it's such a challenge today. It's a challenge because of this pandemic. It's a challenge because we're asked to social distance. We're asked to wear masks where we only see each other's eyes. You know, we're not able to get together in large numbers. You know, it's, it's harder. And yet, maybe this is what should draw us closer together because we're, maybe we're discovering how precious it really is that we can gather together in normality as we did back in last March. Well, maybe those days are coming, and maybe they're not all that far away for us. And so as we think about resetting, let's think about how we're going to reset our our fellowship with one another and how we're going to make every effort to deepen that fellowship with one another. Now let me talk to you a little bit about the importance of evangelism. It's clear that the quality of fellowship drew people to the church rather than drove them away. 
there was something about that fellowship that the people in Jerusalem looked at and they were drawn to it. You say, well, how do you know that? Because in Acts 2 and verse 47, it says, praising God and having favor or enjoying favor with all the people, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. And so this church was pulling people in. God was adding to them, but why was he adding to them? It was because of what people were witnessing. It was because of what people were seeing in that fellowship of believers that drew them to our, themselves. Our congregation in the past have been known as a very friendly congregation. And when we're all together, we're not having to social distance and wear masks. Well, there's a lot of noise and, and joy that's being heard. And people notice that who visit with us. And they see that, is, that it is there. And they're drawn to, to that. But it wasn't just that. The people came to church because the gospel was being taken into the streets uh, to them. The people were taking serious what Jesus said. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and preach the gospel. He didn't say, build a, pre a church building and they will come. It doesn't say that. It says that we are to go into the streets, and that's exactly what they did. And the apostles, they led the way. When you look at Acts, the third chapter, beginning in verses 1 down through 8, actually in that section of Scripture, there you'll see that Peter and John, that they're out in the streets and they're proclaiming the word, and they come along and they see a lame man, and this lame man is begging for money. And they says, gold or silver we don't have, but what we do have is special. Rise up in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And it says, and a man leaped up, and he began following them. They were out in the street. That gave them an occasion to draw a crowd. People saw what had happened. They began preaching the word. The authorities saw that it was happening. They ended up arresting him, throwing him in, in jail, then releasing him. And then those guys got out there and started preaching again. Again, they're going to be arrested in the fourth chapter. But by the time you get down to verse 6, it says that the number of disciples in Jerusalem came to, to be 5,000. They weren't just hunkered down as a new body of people or a new sect, if you will. They're out there in the streets and sharing their faith. The church, when it was persecuted in the eighth chapter, you might recall last week, when they left the church or when they left Jerusalem because of persecution, it says they went everywhere preaching the word. They weren't doing it in church buildings. Church buildings didn't exist. The church of the first century, they met mostly in homes. There were synagogues where the Jews met. Maybe some synagogues may have been converted. I don't know when they had a church building then. But they didn't have nice church buildings like we have. And yet the church grew. They didn't, it wasn't a church building that was the cause of any kind of growth. So there are four observations about the evangelism in the New Testament church that I want you to think about. These are kind of uh, duh observations. You're going to see them. You go, wow, who didn't know that? But sometimes we need to be reminded and to reset them. The first is this. It is never limited to church facilities. As I said, they didn't exist. In fact, it seldom occurred in a place of worship. Most often it took places in the streets, in jails, or in homes. For instance, John and Peter out in the streets, or in the jails, Silas and Paul in the Philippian jail, their feet in stocks, they're singing praises to God. The result of that, the Philippian jailer and his whole household became Christians and were baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins. It was done in homes, and so it was never limited to, our, to a facility or a church building. 
Second, it was always initiated by Christians. People didn't come to the church to find Christ. Christians took Christ into the world to find people. And that's the emphasis of the go thing rather than the come idea. And so we don't build buildings for people to come. We build buildings in order that we might go into the world and bring people to Christ, and then they would fill up a building. So that's the idea there. And so it, it, it was always initiated by the Christian. It wasn't a come and wait for them to show up. It was us going into the world. Then there is a third, uh, a third idea of this. And the third idea has to do with generally they were connected to uh, another unrelated uh, event or experience, a healing, an imprisonment, a conversation, uh, a need which led to the issue of Jesus. Something happened that caused people to see a need for God in their, their lives. And so there was this kind of thing that was happening there that was interrelated because of this fellowship. Then you get to the fourth thing. People were not forced into it. Never once was an unsaved person manipulated into believing. Uh, they came organically or it came naturally as they had this natural fellowship where they cared for one another, where they bore one another's uh, burdens, where they were a part of one another's lives. And then they had opportunity to share the word of God with those who were around them. So caring for people, helping them, being genuinely involved in their lives uh, still is the ideal way, ideal way of expressing our faith. Another way to put it is um, people will care less what you know until they know how much you care. And that's what we are to be about as a body of believers. So let me share with you a few concluding thoughts that I thought about. As I thought about the depth of the church, it's determined by the quality of our worship and our instruction. We can't give up on worship because we believe in instruction. And neither should we stop teaching because we love worship Do you understand what i mean by that some people put such an emphasis on what i'm doing right now that we forget that this is a worship period where we're offering ourselves up to god and god is simply using a human being to speak to you to remind you of some things but it shouldn't be just instruction there should be worship where there's this excitement this um this idea of looking forward to being able to be together with one another, to worship with one another, to gather and, and raise our voices in, in song as we encourage each other and as we uh, praise God, as we gather around this Lord's Supper that talks about the commonality that we have with each other that has drawn us together and bound us together because of Christ's uh, sacrifice. So it's, a, the, it's the quality of both worship and instruction that gives the church strength and stability and discernment between what is good and evil and how we're to live our our lives then there's the breadth of the church that's determined by our commitment to fellowship and evangelism if we stop evangelism then we'll become nothing more than just an exclusive clique instead of a caring church and if we don't reach out then the natural attrition rate will eat us alive and we'll just become an ingrown group of people. What I mean by the natural attrition rate will leave us alive is that congregations will dwindle just by natural attrition. 
teenagers grow up, graduate out of high school and go to colleges. And they meet a, maybe a girl or a boy there and they might stay in that vicinity or go where they feel most comfortable. Or their jobs will lead them to a different place other than this locale and we'll lose them. That's not a bad thing, but we will lose them. We'll lose people because of job transfers. We'll lose people because they decide they don't want to live in Idaho anymore. They want to live somewhere else. We'll lose people simply because they will die. And so if we don't continually reach out uh, to our, our neighbors and bring people in, the church will, by attrition, uh, grow weak. Knowing that, we'll become ingrown. The words that I like to sometimes use is we become belly button gazers, where all we care about is me, myself, and I, just us. And that's wrong because the church was never to be just a me, myself, and I thing. The church was designed by God to be one that was ever reaching out to those who, were, who are around us, who are lost. Let me now take a closer look at God's priorities. This is really quick. When you think about God's priorities, God's priority really is summed up in John, the third chapter, and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Not to be clichéous, or not to even, you know, be disrespectful. But God has done everything that he possibly can to show you how much he loves you. And now he's asking you, won't you be my valentine? Won't you draw close to me and have a relationship with me? And so this morning, as I finish, what's your relationship like with your wife? What's your relationship like with the husband, with Jesus Christ himself? And if it isn't right, won't you make it right? While together we stand and sing and give you opportunity to respond. Won't you come?